Tonight, we're going to do something a little bit different, something I've never done uh, before, at least in a one-night study. And so if this kind of fails miserably and you don't understand a thing I'm talking about tonight, it's not your fault. Uh, I'll try to do the best I can with it. What I'm going to try to explain to you tonight and go through in Revelation chapters 2 and 3 is a concept. And the concept, well, I'll title the message, Putting the Seven Churches of Revelation into Historical Perspective. I mean, let's just kind of review where we're at with this. Revelation chapter 2 and Revelation chapter 3, Jesus dictates seven letters to seven different churches that existed in the days of the Apostle John when the book of Revelation was first written. I mean, look at Revelation chapter 2, verse 1. To the angel of the church of Ephesus, write. And then, you know, then follows the letter. And then every letter uh, concludes uh, at the end, verse 8 of Revelation chapter 2. And to the angel of the church in Smyrna, write. Uh, Verse 12. And to the angel of the church in Pergamos, write. Now, we understood that angel there is probably not being used in the sense of a guardian angel or an actual spirit being angel, but more so in the sense of the literal meaning of the Greek word angel, which is simply messenger. It's probably referring to the leader or the pastor of the church, and it's a message to him that the messenger, that the leader of the church, and its instructions to the church. Now, many have attempted to make sense of Revelation chapters 2 and 3 by taking them as a unified whole. In other words, there's seven letters. Let's not just take a look at one, and then two, and then three, but let's take a look at what the whole group of seven has to teach us together. Now, it's significant that Jesus chose these particular seven congregations to address. Understand that in the area, all of these seven cities were in the same region, approximately what's modern-day Turkey. But yet, he chose seven churches in that region, seven cities, even though there were other churches, other cities with Christians in that region that he didn't address. For example, have you ever read in your book, you've seen the book of Colossians? Those are Christians in the city of Colossae. Colossae was right in the middle of these, yet Jesus didn't address them. Why? Well, because he had something he wanted to say to these seven. And so, additionally, some have pointed out that there's an order to these letters. And perhaps that this order... Pro points, we should say, to a prophetically speaking, to a broad explanation of church history from the time of the ascension of Jesus to his return. And so that's kind of what we're going to look at tonight. Now, it's also interesting to notice that Paul addressed seven churches. Are you aware of that? How many churches did Paul write to? Seven. Rome, Corinth, Galatia, Ephesus, Colossae, Philippi, and Thessalonica. So seven churches Paul wrote to. Seven churches Jesus wrote to. Now, early commentators on the book of Revelation emphasized that seven over and over again in the Bible is used as a number of completion. Seven days in a week. And that's what it's really based all around. Over and over again, you find the motif of seven throughout the picture, uh, throughout the scriptures, I should say, as a picture of completion. And they want to emphasize through that because Jesus wrote to seven churches Because Paul wrote to seven churches, what they want to emphasize is that they spoke to the complete church, not just to the individual churches they wrote to. As one commentator put it, he said, the churches of all time are comprehended within the seven. What we read here in these churches, when we open up the the book of Galatians, this letter that Paul wrote to the city of Galatia, it wasn't just to the Galatians. The Holy Spirit has something to say to us through it. 
Now, what we also find is that there is this pattern, and you go through, and I took a look at four or five different commentators who followed this this uh, thinking, uh, some of them modern commentators, some of them older commentators, and it's very interesting to see how they, they take a church, like the church of the city of Ephesus, and they say that it represents an age or a time period in church history. For example, uh, one commentator says the, the Ephesian period of church history is the, the year 70 A.D. to the year 170 A.D. Another one says it's the apostolic church before 100 A.D. And you go through, and each church, they say, represents a different age or time period in church history. Now, what's interesting about this is when you go through and take a look at what the different commentators say about this, none of them agree precisely. None of them. Not a single one. Whenever they list a chart of dates, none of the dates are exactly the same. You know, one commentator or another. But here's the other fascinating thing. They're all about the same. Let me say that again. When you go through and look at the commentators on how they divide up these seven churches and how they sequentially illustrate or or speak to different ages in church history, none of them agree precisely, but all of them agree generally, which is a fascinating thing to see. I really think that the Holy Spirit has given us a pattern here. Now, I have to say the Holy Spirit's given us a pattern, but we have to be careful with this. And I'll how I want to say this, I almost want to shout this and and make the recording equipment, you know, peg all its needles right now and really, really bring this out. It's important to see that if we're going to take a look at these seven churches sequentially as representing periods of church history, that they describe broad, imprecise descriptions of the church through history, allowing for general and generous periods of overlap. In other words, I don't believe that the Ephesian church ends and the Smyrna church begins. Like, you know, you see it in the factory, they punch the time clock. You know, one guy comes in, the other guy comes in, your shift's off, now it's your shift. No! These are broad movements within the church, and there's generous overlap between them all. And I think that if we accept these letters as descriptive of the flow of church history, it doesn't require them as we see them to see them as exclusive or rigidly sequential ages. Now, it's also important to say, and this is what makes me afraid, this is what I want to shout out here tonight, is that if we see these churches as descriptive of periods of church history, this is surely their secondary significance. First and foremost, these letters were letters written to real, existing, first-century congregations and to all who have an ear to hear. If we're looking for patterns of church history, since it's not clearly revealed to us in the Scriptures that this is what they're describing, honestly speaking, tonight, we're going to do something we don't often do. We're going to spend some time reading into the text. And so, we'll see how it goes out together, and you can be a Berean and take it or leave it. I mean, this is just one of those things we're going to spend some time reading into the text. However, let's understand that this is the secondary significance. No, no, no. The primary, most important significance is exactly what we've gone through the past three weeks in the book of Revelation study, where we've just gone through verse by verse and see what the Holy Spirit said to the church of Ephesus and how it applies to us. What the Holy Spirit says to the church in Smyrna and how it applies to us. What the Holy Spirit's church at Pergamos and how it applies to us. That's the primary, that's the important meaning. Tonight, we're kind of having some fun with this. We're going to see how these things apply as the descriptions of church history. Now let's take a look here. Take a look. First of all, Revelation chapter 2 at the Ephesian church. 
I'll just read the whole description here, and then we'll go through and just make some points. I, I don't know what I'm doing here tonight. Let's, let's see if we can make it through this. To the angel of the church at Ephesus write, These things says he who holds the seven stars in his right hand, who walks in the midst of the seven golden lampstands. I know your works, your labor, your patience, and that you cannot bear those who are evil. And you've tested those who say they are apostles and are not, and have found them liars. And you have persevered and have patience and have labored for my name's sake and have not become weary. Nevertheless, I have this against you, that you've left your first love. Remember, therefore, from where you have fallen, repent and do the first works, or else I will come to you quickly and remove your lampstand from its place, unless you repent. But this you have, that you hate the deeds of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To him who overcomes, I will give to eat from the tree of life, which is in the midst of the paradise of God. Now again, if you're looking for a careful verse-by-verse explanation of this, you're not going to find it here tonight. We already did that a few weeks ago. What I want to do is just take a look at this description of the church at Ephesus and see how it describes this first period of church history that we want to talk about, which I'll call the post-apostolic church. The church immediately after the apostles. You know, you had John and, and Paul and, and Peter and these leading apostles. The Bible says that the church is built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Jesus Christ being the chief cornerstone. Well, what was immediately built upon that foundation? What was the post-apostolic church? And what was the character of that church? Well, if you take a look at this letter in Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 through 7, you find first and foremost that it was a working church. Right? That's what he said. I know your works, your labor, your patience. You've persevered and you have patience and have labored for my name's sake and have not become weary. In these early years of Christianity, Christians were devoted to the cause of Jesus Christ. They lived and they died with a desire to spread the gospel and to live for Jesus. And the hard-working heart of the Apostle Paul was alive and well in the church, and that was a good thing. This was a hard-working church immediately after the Apostles. And might I say as well that it was also a pure church. Jesus says in this letter, You cannot bear those who are evil, and you have tested those who say they are apostles and are not, and you found them liars. Well, that's a pure church, isn't it? I mean, they, they see heresy, they, they see compromise, and they get it out. The years right after the apostles found a rising number of false prophets and deceivers among the Christians. And this began before the apostles passed from the scene. Paul warned about false teachers. Uh, John warned about false teachers. And the post-apostolic church took these warnings seriously. And they brought forth warnings and writings to equip the church to deal with false prophets. I think one ancient writing, it's called the Didache. It's an ancient church writing that was meant to help churches and know, uh, well, one of the parts of it discusses how you can tell a false prophet. And they say, look, if a guy comes among you and says, I'm a prophet, and he says, thus says the Lord, give me a good meal and a bed to sleep in for a couple nights. They say, you know he's not from the Lord. You see, this kind of thing would go on all the time. And so they they had to protect against it, and the early church, it it was a pure church. Might we say that the post-apostolic church was also a church in danger of losing relationship with Jesus Christ? Did you see that there? Verse 5? Excuse me, uh, verse 4. Nevertheless, I have this against you, that you have left your first love. Remember, therefore, from where you have fallen, repent and do the first works. 
You see, one of the neglected and sad aspects of church history is understanding how quickly the church moved away from grace and into legalism. Friends, I have to say, from my study of church history, it happened incredibly rapidly. That after Paul and John and the vanguards of the grace of God, after they passed from the scene, the church slipped into legalism very quickly. Now, why? Well, part of this was because they saw the corruption of the world around them, and they saw it creeping into the church. Now, the church always had a tendency, when they see an evil, wicked world on the outside, and when they see it starting to creep into the inside, there's oftentimes a tendency they want to erect a wall of legalism. And they think that'll keep it out. No, no. Sometimes Christians find it all too easy to leave grace in the name of growth. And when the church it seems besieged by crisis, an emphasis on grace can seem like a, like a luxury. But friends, many early Christians soon departed from the simple teaching of the life in grace. You see, in the decades after the apostles died, writings began to appear showing a departure from the New Testament principles of grace. And they tended to carry on the legalistic principles of, well, of Judaism, for example. That was the same tendency towards Phariseeism that Jesus despised. Some prominent Christian teachers, they, they tried their hardest to preach a strong morality so that the church would have a spotless reputation. But they put the emphasis on personal performance and they neglected the grace of God. And before long, there, there were groups within the Christian world teaching that, well, okay, you become a Christian and, and you're baptized, okay? Okay. If you sin in a significant way after you're baptized, forget it, no repentance, you're going to hell. That's right. They'd say, you commit adultery after you've been baptized? Tough luck. Why well, want to repent? Sorry. Where'd the grace of God go? Well, when? Some groups taught that there was one forgiveness of a major sin allowed. But then after that, no more. Okay, I used up my one. Well, no more then. An example of this kind of thinking is found in the noted early Christian writing, The Shepherd of Hermas. He says, The Lord, therefore, being full of compassion, and had compassion on his handiwork, and appointed this repentance, and to me was given the power of this repentance. But I say to you, said he, that after that great and solemn calling, should any man be sorely tempted of the devil's sin, he has but one repentance. That's it, just one. Some people taught that Jesus paid the first installment on our debt before God. And then it was up to us to keep up the payments. You see, what they thought was that they could keep people purer by this kind of legalism. But you can't. No, they started separating grace from Jesus. They started saying that you don't get grace directly from Jesus Christ. No, instead you get grace from the church. For example, one Christian teacher named Ignatius who died just about the end of the apostolic period. He thought that grace and its distribution was in the church's bishops or pastors. It's like the pastor was the teller at the bank of grace, right? And you want to come and get a grace deposit? Well, you've got to come to the pastor, and he, he gives you the grace. And what puts grace into the bank of grace? Well, it's the good work of the saints. The idea is, is that the saints were better before God than they had to be. And so they have excess grace in the bank. And the church can go out and the pastor can deal it out. No, it's, just, it's a messed up conception completely. No, no, the Bible says that we receive grace directly from Jesus Christ. 
And all this happened at a relatively early date. That's why Jesus was so concerned about this loss of relationship for this church at Ephesus. Now, the apostolic church, I think, continued on in some way, or the post-apostolic church, anywhere from the, the years 100 to, say, 300 A.D., depending on the level of persecution. Because the next church, verse 8 of Revelation chapter 2, is the church in Smyrna. And there we read, And to the angel of the church in Smyrna write, These things says the first and the last, who was dead and who came to life. Here's a church written to the, 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 the persecuted church. You'll see what I mean here. Let's read the whole thing together here. Uh, Revelation chapter 2, beginning at verse 8. And to the angel of the church in Smyrna write, These things says the first and the last, who was dead and came to life. I know your works, tribulation and poverty, but you're rich. And I know the blasphemy of those who say they are Jews and are not, but are a synagogue of Satan. Do not fear any of those things which you are about to suffer. Indeed, the devil is about to throw some of you into prison, that you may be tested and will have tribulation ten days. Be faithful until death, and I will give you the crown of life. He who has an ear to hear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. He who overcomes shall not be hurt by the second death. Well, we know that the persecuted church was a suffering church. And here we're talking about the church that suffered such terrible persecution under the Roman emperors. And there was a suffering church, and the church at Smyrna is a suffering church. We know that the persecuted church was first persecuted by Jewish people who resented Christianity. And so that's reflected in the letter to the church at Smyrna. The persecuted church was well acquainted with death and martyrdom. And that's why he promises them there, If you notice here, it says in verse 10, Be faithful until death, and I will give you the crown of life. Well, that's a terrible persecution that the church had to go through in the years approximately between 100 and 315 A.D. The Roman historian Cornelius Tacitus wrote about Nero's persecution of Christians in the time of Nero. He said, consequently, to get rid of the report, Nero fastened the guilt on Christians and the most exquisite tortures on this class hated for their abominations, called Christians by the populace. Christus, from whom the name had its origin, suffered the extreme penalty during the reign of Tiberius at the hands of one of our procurators, Pontius Pilate, and a most mischievous superstition that's checked for the moment broke out. Then he goes on to describe how uh, Nero would take these Christians and roll them in tar and impale them on poles and light them on fire while he rode his chariot through his garden. He describes how they would take Christians and and, uh, set them in the arena with the gladiators and sew them up in the skins of wild animals and, and then let other animals, living animals, beasts, go and just tear them to pieces. Men, women, children thrown into the arena to die horrible, terrible deaths, to, to delight bloodthirsty crowds. Happened over and over again during this time. It's amazing. It's amazing how the church not only grew, but it prospered during this period. It was said back then by one great Christian writer that the blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church. And it's true. Every time they spilt the blood of a Christian, it was like sowing seeds in the ground. And people who sat in the crowds around those arenas, they saw the incredible bravery and the incredible devotion of those Christians, and they realized that there was something to their faith in Jesus Christ, and Christianity grew and prospered in the Roman Empire. I think it's amazing that this church of Smyrna that Jesus writes to in Revelation chapter 2, it never hears any uh, criticism from Jesus. It wasn't that they were perfect, but listen, they had enough on their mind. They were facing this terrible persecution. Then you have the church of a Next church age, that's in verse 12, where it describes the church 
of Pergamos. Let me read that passage. Revelation chapter 2, verses 12 through 17. And to the angel of the church in Pergamos write, These things says he who has the sharp two-edged sword. I know your works and where you dwell, where Satan's throne is, and you hold fast to my name and did not deny my faith, even in the days in which Antipas was my faithful martyr, who was killed among you where Satan dwells. But I have a few things against you, because you have there those who hold the doctrine of Balaam, who taught Balak to put a stumbling block before the children of Israel, to eat things sacrificed to idols, and to commit sexual immorality. Thus you also have those who hold the doctrine of the Nicolaitans, which thing I hate." Repent, or else I will come to you quickly and will fight against them with the sword of my mouth. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To him who overcomes, I will give some of the hidden manna to eat, and I will give him a white stone, and on the stone a new name written, which no one knows except him who receives it. Again, it's so tempted to go into a detailed uh, exposition of this text, and all I can say is, well, get the tape. We did this a few weeks ago. Now I just want to look for a few patterns that would speak to a following age of, of church history, which I'll call the Pergamos Church Age, the Church of the Roman Emperors. You had the period of the post-apostolic church, and then you had the period of the persecuted church, but the persecution didn't last forever. Matter of fact, the persecution ended, and I'll discuss a little bit more about that in a few moments, but when it ended, the the church essentially married the government. It married the state. And what you had now was a combination of church and state working together. And the church of the Roman emperors needed to divide the church from the government. That's why Jesus introduces himself in in verse 12 of Revelation chapter 2 to the church of Pergamos as these things who has the sharp two-edged sword. You you had a political and a religious alliance, and God said, cut it off. It should be divided. I have a sharp two-edged sword. See, my friends, at the end of the third and the beginning of the fourth century, it looked like Christianity might just be doomed, or at least be beat back to nothing more than an insignificant faith with a few followers. There were administrative changes going on in the Roman Empire, but more importantly, there were very tough tough emperors who brought severe persecution. The most horrible persecutions that the Christians ever endured were the ones that came at the very end of the time of persecution. And one of the great persecutors of the church was a Roman emperor named Galerius. He rooted all Christians out of the army and out of all government jobs. And then he started a tremendous persecution in the year 303. Churches were destroyed, scriptures were seized and burned, and Christian services were prohibited. It looked like Christianity might just be stamped out by the Roman government because they were going at it with all their strength. But two remarkable things happened. First of all, before Emperor Galerius died, he issued the Edict of Toleration. Galerius had been a great persecutor of the church, but surprisingly, on his deathbed, he issued what's known as the Edict of Toleration. Now, he didn't admit that he had been wrong before, but this Roman emperor who had persecuted Christians admitted that the determination and the tenacity of Christians in face of persecution had won him over, and he decided that for the good of the empire, we should tolerate Christianity within the Roman Empire. He said, listen, uh, Christians, go ahead and you can pray to your God for the good of the empire. And so he gave an official, established toleration. And Christians said, praise the Lord, this is amazing. I mean, in one minute, we're, we're on the dead, we're almost being killed. Every one of us, we're all going to die. And next minute, the Roman emperor who once persecuted us on his deathbed, he says, I'm issuing this edict of toleration. 
The second great event that changed everything was the conversion of Constantine. In the year 312, the Roman emperor, the man who would become Roman emperor, became a Christian. You see, in that year, the imperial throne of Rome was up for grabs, and a young Roman general named Constantine had the support of the Roman armies of Britain and Gaul. And he was going to be the next armor, and so he marched, uh, the next emperor, he marched with his armies from the north and came to meet the other guy who wanted the throne, coming from the south. And shortly before those armies were to meet in, the bat- meet in battle, Constantine saw a cross of light in the sky. He also either read in the sky or heard, we're not really sure, the words, in this sign conquer, in Latin, in hoc signus vinces. Constantine was already beginning to reject the multiple gods of the Roman in favor of one god, but now he saw the cross and the sign, and to him it was that, well, I need to become a Christian. I need to follow Jesus Christ. And so he saw the vision again, and this time the cross, the top of it was bent over. So that it looked like the letters, Greek letters Chi and Rho, which are the first two letters of the name Christ. And so he believed Jesus told him, mark your soldiers' shields with this sign. So all the shields of the soldiers in Constantine's armies were marked with this, and they went into battle fighting for Jesus, and he came to power. He granted freedom and official status for Christians, and and actually Constantine did what he could to help the church. He tried to restore what was taken away in recent persecution. Government salaries started to be paid to bishops and preachers. Sunday was recognized as a, a day of rest. He also tried to sort sort out doctrinal controversies. But you see, in in a very short time, the church changed. It changed from being persecuted to privileged. For centuries, the church was a counterculture movement. Now, it was the culture. And you know what? I gotta tell you, the church didn't handle it very well. The church didn't handle it at all. That's why, if you notice this in this letter to the church at Pergamos, he makes some pretty dramatic statements. How about this? I know your works and where you dwell, where Satan's throne is. Or the church of the Roman emperors, it did have some shining lights. He said, you have some that hold fast to my name and did not deny my faith, even in the days in which Antipas was my faithful martyr, who was killed among you where Satan dwells. But you see, the church of the Roman emperors corrupted Christianity by making it the empire's religion, by absorbing pagan customs, traditions, and immorality into the church. That's exactly what happened in this church at Pergamos. Notice it here. He says, but I have a few things against you, verse 14, because you have there those who hold the doctrine of Balaam, who taught Balak to put a stumbling block before the children of Israel, to eat things sacrificed to idols, and to commit sexual immorality. Thus you also have those who hold the doctrine of the Nicolaitans, which things I hate. What happened when when Christianity became the favored religion of the Roman Empire, suddenly everybody wanted to be a Christian for political gain, for financial gain. There was a time in America where, you know, if you were respected businessmen in town, you had to go to church. It's not like that anymore. There was a time, I mean, you just had, if you weren't seen to be a church-going man of the community, people wouldn't shop at your store. And so the businessman would go to church, wouldn't necessarily turn his heart towards Jesus Christ. Some did, some didn't. You take that and you amplify it about a hundred times, and that was the situation back in these early days of the Christian Roman Empire. Now the next church age 
gets even worse, the Thyatiran church age. This is what I call the medieval Roman Catholic church. Now, what's interesting about this is that we've already discussed three of the seven churches, right? Now, of these three of the seven, none of the first three have any mention of the return of Jesus. But each one of the last four churches of the, written to in the book of Revelation mention the return of Jesus. This makes me believe that each one of the last four, in essence, remain on the earth until the return of Jesus. The first three have pretty much passed away. We don't have the post-apostolic church anymore. We don't have the persecuted church of the Roman emperors anymore, although there are places in the world where the church is being ferociously persecuted. We don't have the church of Pergamos anymore. There's no emperors over the church in the same way. But actually, elements of the church of Thyatira still remain of the medieval Roman Catholic Church. Let's read that passage beginning in verse 18, Revelation chapter 2. And to the angel of the church in Thyatira write, These things says the Son of God, who has eyes like a flame of fire, and his feet like fine brass. I know your works, love, service, faith, and your patience. As for your works, the last are more than the first. So they were working, right? There were good things there, but... Nevertheless, I have a few things against you because you allow that woman Jezebel who calls herself a prophetess to teach and seduce my servants to commit sexual immorality and to eat things sacrificed to idols. And I gave her time to repent of her sexual immorality and she did not repent. Indeed, I will cast her into a sickbed and those who commit adultery with her into great tribulation unless they repent of their deeds. I will kill her children with death and all the churches shall know that I am he who searches the minds and the hearts and I will give each to each one of you according to your works. Now to you I say, and to the rest in Thyatira, as many as do not have this doctrine, who have not known the depths of Satan, as they say, I will put on you no other burden, but hold fast what you have till I come. And he who overcomes and keeps my works until the end, to him I will give power over the nations. He shall rule them with a rod of iron. They shall be dashed to pieces like the potter's vessel, as I have also received from my Father, and I will give to him the morning star. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Well, first of all, I think we would say that the medieval Roman Catholic Church, as the Church of Thyatira, showed remarkable examples of love, service, faith, and patience. I mean, I think you find examples of this, for example, in the monastic movement. Monks who would dedicate their lives, hermits who would go out and live in desolate deserts. I mean, they, they wanted to work for God. They wanted to serve God. They wanted to sacrifice for God. There was this very real uh, understanding of this. Or how about another aspect? How about the building of cathedrals? I mean, you go today and you see these amazing cathedrals that were built in that period of time, and you stand back and you think, they built this with their technology back then at their expense. It's amazing. You know, you can really tell what a culture values by the cathedrals it builds. Back then, they built their most remarkable, most striking buildings they built to the glory of God. Now, the most remarkable, striking buildings we build today, well, you got shopping malls, you got, you know, uh, business centers downtown, right? And you got baseball parks. You know, I mean, that's pretty much it, right? I mean, it says something. So it shows the high priority that society and church placed on God's glory. But, just like the church of Thyatira, the medieval Roman Catholic church was corrupted by following a woman. 
Now, did you notice that? It says, nevertheless, I have a few things against you because you allow that woman Jezebel, who calls herself a prophetess, to teach and seduce my servants. Say, well, wait a minute. What was the woman that the Roman Catholic Church followed and was corrupted by? Well, curiously, the woman was Mary. Now, more properly, I should say, the Roman Catholic idea of Mary. The Roman Catholic idea of Mary is far more based on pagan mother goddess traditions than it is on the biblical account of Mary. I mean, you just open up your Bible and take a look at Mary, and she's a remarkable, godly woman. And what she, well, she's confessing, I need Jesus as my Savior in the Gospel of Luke. And then turn around, she's telling the servants, whatever Jesus tells you to do, you do it. She's always pointing to Jesus. Well, she's a great woman in the Gospels. But like I say, in the Roman Catholic idea of Mary, it finds its basis far more in ancient pagan mother goddess religions than it does in the Bible. You see, this was the problem when the uh, church adopted all these pagan customs. They brought them in. And they took the, the pagan imitations and looked for something to latch onto, and they latched onto it in the church. So the medieval Roman Catholic Church was also rife with sexual immorality and idolatry. If you notice there, he says, Nevertheless, I have a few things against you, because you allow that woman Jezebel, who calls herself a prophetess, to teach and seduce my servants to commit sexual immorality. Now, the sexual immorality was often linked to, to the monastic and priesthood commands of celibacy. Let me give you one example of this. It's the career of a man named Pius II. He's interesting as an example of the depravity of the popes in the latter part of this period. He was born in the year 1405 and one of 18 children to a family that was poor but of noble rank. He was educated and began working as an assistant to various bishops and cardinals. Now, he, he was a political expert. You know how it is in office politics, how you have that instinct of siding with the right group? Well, he knew how to do that. I mean, you know, whoever was going to be the next people in charge, he knew how to come along and, and figure out they were going to be the next ones and come alongside them. And so he made his way through the church bureaucracy. Eventually, he was appointed as a bishop and then a cardinal. And then when he was 53, he was selected among all the cardinals to be the next pope, even though his sexual immorality was widely known throughout the church. He fathered at least two children and had many mistresses, and he liked to brag about his ability to seduce women. He said that his sexual appetite was an old bad habit. And he said, hey, I can't be wiser than Solomon or holier than David. He even published erotic stories and taught young men how to seduce women. He appointed his nephew a cardinal when the guy was only 23 years old. And later, he appointed a family friend of the same officer office when the boy was only 17. He, he excommunicated a man for keeping on his hat in the Pope's presence. On a visit to Siena, he met a man named Rodrigo Borgia, who even Pius rebuked for his immorality. This guy was so bad that this Pope rebuked him for his immorality. As this man would give immoral and licentious banquets where women were invited to attend without their husbands and were passed around in an immoral way. That man, Borgia, went on to become Pope Alexander VI, who ruled immorally, but hey, he commissioned, he commissioned Michelangelo's Pieta to be carved. You see, that's what these popes were into. They were into the arts and into beautiful things. 
But it had all become a great big political game. The idolatry was also connected to the cult of saint worship and veneration. In 1462, Pius II gave an elaborate celebration to commemorate the coming of, to Rome of what was said to be the skull of the Apostle Andrew. And when it came into the church, he fell down prostrate before the relic and thanked the skull for coming out of its grave to the remains of his brother apostles. The last words of this pope on his deathbed were, Pray for me, I am a sinner. Well, you see, the, the, the medieval Roman Catholic Church suffered greatly from this lack of spiritual power and vitality. In my library, I have a wonderful, wonderful set of books uh, called uh, A History of the Expansion of Christianity. It's by a great, great Christian scholar named Kenneth Scott Latourette. And he just goes through and he talks about the, the expansion of the church through the centuries. The volume covering this period of time in church history, he titles it, The Thousand Years of Uncertainty. During this time, Christians held great political and cultural power, but Christianity was not especially strong or vital. There was not much energetic missionary outreach. There was not much uh, passion for everyday holiness and serving Jesus Christ. This was not a healthy time for the church. See, one of the worst parts of this was that the church had become in love with political power. This is one of the things that frightens me when I see Christians who seem to pursue political power today. I mean, look, we want to be able to make our voice heard in society, and that's a great thing. This is a democracy, and, and our voice should be heard just as much as anybody else. But Christians have no desire to run things as a Christian party or anything like that. No thank you. You see, we ran all of Europe for a thousand years. Today they call it the Dark Ages. No, we'll preach the gospel. We'll, we'll minister Jesus Christ. You see, look at the promise to the church at Thyatira at the end of it. He says, verse 26, And he who overcomes and keeps my works to the end, to him I will give power over the nations. In other words, Jesus is saying to this church period, Listen, if you want real power, get it from me. I'll give it to you. Don't look political. I'll give it to you. But the popes of this period, this thousand years, were political politicians and emperors. They were not true men of God. The office was a political office, and there was a constant struggle between popes and kings to see who would dominate the political arena. Let me give you a paraphrased decree of Pope Gregory VII. This was given March 7th in the year 1080, and it gives an example of the political aspiration and arrogance of the popes. In this decree, the pope commands that people affirm the following statements, right? You have to agree to these statements, that the Roman Catholic Church was founded by God alone, that the Roman Pope alone can rightly be called universal. That the Pope alone can depose or reinstate bishops. That among other things, we not, ought, not to, ought not to remain in the same house as with those excommunicated by the Pope. That the Pope alone may use the imperial insignia. That all princes shall kiss the feet of the Pope and the Pope alone. That the name of the Pope alone shall be spoken in the churches. That this is the only name in the world that the Pope has the power to depose emperors, that no chapter and no book shall be considered God's word without the Pope's authority, that no one can judge the Pope, that the Roman Catholic Church has never erred, nor will it err to all eternity, the scripture bearing witness, 
that the Pope, if he has been canonically ordained, is undoubtedly made a saint by the merits of St. Peter. That the Pope may depose and reinstate bishops without taking counsel from anyone. And that he who is not at peace with the Roman Catholic Church shall not be considered Christian. Well, friends, this was the corruption of the Roman Catholic Church in those days. And so here, Jesus speaks, and he points out that there's some at the church in Thyatira who are faithful. Look at what he says here in verse 24. But to you I say, and to the rest in Thyatira, as many as do not have this doctrine, and who have not known the depths of Satan, as they call him, I will put on you no other burden. Praise God, as you take a look at this period of church history, there were shining lights that came forward, shining lights of people who did have a real love for God. Yes, the church as an institution may have been corrupt. Yes, many of its leadership. But there were individuals who loved God and served him, were shining lights in that period of time. Yet we see the danger and the difficulty of this period of the church at Thyatira. Now, the next church, the church at Sardis. Let's take a look here. This is the church that I would say describes institutional Protestantism. The Catholics just got their licking a bit ago. Now it's time for the Protestants to get theirs. And to the angel of the church in Sardis write, These things says he who has the seven spirits of God and the seven stars. I know your works, that you have a name, that you are alive, but you are dead. Be watchful and strengthen the things which remain, that are ready to die, for I have not found your works perfect before God. Remember, therefore, how have you received and heard. Hold fast and repent. Therefore, if you will not watch, I will come upon you as a thief, and you will not know what hour I will come upon you. You have a few names, even in Sardis, who have not defiled their garments, and they shall walk with me in white, for they are worthy. He who overcomes shall be clothed in white garments, and I will not blot his name out from the book of life, but I will confess his name before my Father and before his angels. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Institutional Protestantism started with the Great Reformation, with the work of Martin Luther. You might say that it started at noon on October 31st, 1517, when Luther nailed his 95 statements against the practice of selling indulgences to the church door of Wittenberg, Germany. Now, institutional Protestantism made necessary and great doctrinal changes within the Reformation. But let me say, it failed to bring real life or revival to the church. Did you see what it said there? It's a heavy statement, wasn't it? He says, I know your works, that you have a name, that you are alive, but you are dead. Now, we know that the Reformation changed ideas tremendously, but you should know that the Reformation was far less successful in changing lives. In many ways, churches were no longer Roman Catholic. Now they were Protestant, but they were still dead. One indication of this are the pastoral visitation records we have of the Lutheran church during the life of Martin Luther in the decades immediately following. Luther himself saw this. He took a look at the churches and he said, they're in a terrible state. The the people are dead spiritually. They don't care about church at all. They don't care about God one bit. It's like we, we put the right doctrines in order, but what's happening here? Late in October 1525, Martin Luther wrote to the Duke in a new attitude. He said, Churches are everywhere in a state of disrepair. No one pays for their upkeep or fulfills his obligations. And the common man shows so little respect to his preacher and pastor that unless your majesty will agree to undertake a great house cleaning, God's word and divine service will have soon be vanished from the earth. 
So over and over again, you see, look at these visitation records. And they say things like, not a soul comes during the week. And on Sundays, they usually stay away without having obtained permission. They treat God's word with open derision. Here's another one. As soon as the minister begins to preach, his listeners jump up and make for the door. (laughs) Control yourself here. (laughs) And you see, what I want to get across here is institutional Protestantism, it started many great and necessary things. We had to have the Reformation that Martin Luther brought, but it didn't go far enough. It didn't go far enough in its biblical understanding. It also did not go far enough in touching lives. That's why what they needed to do was follow them through to completion. Look at what he says to the church at Sardis. Be watchful and strengthen the things which remain that are ready to die. I have not found your works perfect before God. Now, the foundation stones of the Reformation were four principles. Sola Scriptura, which means the Bible alone. Sola Fides, by faith alone. Sola Gratia, by grace alone. And Sola Christus, by Christ alone. And these were glorious principles. The church needed that. Yet they didn't apply those principles across the board. Can I give some examples? Well, the issue of a state church or a believer's church. You know, I talked about the danger of wedding the church to the political government. Martin Luther's church was just as wedded to the political government as the Roman Catholic church was. That's why it was the institutional state church. And they didn't separate it. Listen, nowhere are you going to find in the Bible, nowhere in the New Testament, the idea of a state church. Jesus said, my kingdom is not of this world. They said, no. Or the issue of baptism. Martin Luther, he's still believing in baptizing babies. I could go into the big theological arguments and why they say this and that. Look, the bottom line is that it's just not there. It's reaching. How about another one? The issues surrounding the end times and the return of Jesus. Look, I know it's not true in completion, but in a general sense, I would say that Martin Luther and the other great reformers, they simply grabbed hold of Roman Catholic eschatology and adopted it as their own. They didn't think through biblically, I believe, the aspects of eschatology. Now, again, it's hard to criticize those who did so much good because they did amazing good, essential good that the church benefits from today. It's hard to criticize those people who did so much good for the good that they didn't do. But the terrible part about it is that the reformers persecuted and killed those who disagreed with them and those who wanted to follow the Bible all the way through. And so those people who stood up and said, we don't need a state church. We'll just have our own church. We'll just be a group of believers. We'll just love Jesus. We'll be our own church. They persecuted and killed those people. Those people who said, look, let's have believers' baptism. We don't believe in baptizing babies. We're going to baptize people as adults. They killed those people. See, my friends, we appreciate what God did through the Reformers. And believe me, I study this. I have a tremendous appreciation for Reformed teaching and what God did through Reformers. But knowing the whole story from history, i got to say, Sometimes I get a chill up my spine when I hear people calling for a modern reformation. Because I'll tell you what, if this church right now, if this church right now could be lifted up and time transported back to 1523 Germany, 
we would be persecuted and many of us would be killed for our ideas about baptism, about the matter of a believer's church, and about our end times beliefs. I mean, we take those things for granted today. But many of those, hey, listen, we, we could be persecuted and killed for what we believe about communion. So please, the, the reformers did a marvelous work, marvelous. But they didn't go far enough. And God's message to institutional Protestantism is simple. You started well, just continue in the things that you started. He said, remember, therefore, how you received and heard, hold fast and repent. Hey, that was God's message. I think if God could say anything to institutional Protestants is, hey, remember sola scriptura, remember sola fides, just carry it through the whole thing. Carry it through. You guys started great. It's marvelous. Carry it through. But I haven't found your works perfect before God. Certainly, as he says, there were some in Sardis who walked right, but they needed to get ready for the return of Jesus. And quickly now, the last two, the Philadelphian church, verse 7 of Revelation chapter 3. And to the angel of the church in Philadelphia write, These things says he who is holy, he who is true, he who has the key of David, he who opens and no one shuts, and shuts and no one opens. See, I know your works. See, I've set before you an open door, and no one can shut it, for you have a little strength, have kept my word, and have not denied my name. Indeed, I will make those of the synagogue of Satan, who say they are Jews and are not, but lie. Indeed, I will make them come and worship before your feet, and to know that I have loved you. Because you have kept my command to persevere, I also will keep you from the hour of trial, which shall come upon the whole world to test those who dwell on the earth. Behold, I come quickly. Hold fast what you have, that no one may take your crown. He who overcomes, I will make him a pillar in the temple of my God, and he shall go out no more. And I will write on him the name of my God, and the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem, which comes down out of heaven from my God. And I will write on him my new name. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. The Philadelphian church age, I would identify with the missionary and evangelical church. You see, the missionary and evangelical church had and it used a tremendous open door from Jesus to spread the gospel all over the world. Starting in the 18th century, the early 1700s, where it made a remarkable work through men like William Carey, who really birthed the modern missions movement and started going all over the world to Africa, to India, to the South Sea Islands, all over the world. This passionate desire, get the gospel out, let's go. And they did it, and they walked through that open door. And I I love it here. He says, you have a little strength, right? That's what the missionary movement, the evangelical world used. They they used uh, used simple people to do a great work. A little strength. Take a man like William Carey, this great man. You know what he was? He was He was a cobbler. And God used him to birth the modern missions movement. And it did in a very class-conscious age. One day he was being introduced, but it's very some stuffy, class-conscious British people, you know. And one of them guys wanted to insult William Carey. And he says, well, here's William Carey. He's just a shoemaker. And Carey said, well, my Lord, I have to say, I'm not even a shoemaker. I just repair shoes. I'm a cobbler. Now, I'm not even a shoemaker. That's a little too high for me. I just fix the old ones. See, God, you simple people in the missionary and the evangelical church. And they faced persecution from other religious people, as it was said in the Church of Philadelphia. And it also makes it very clear that the missionary and evangelical church will not go through the Great Tribulation. Did you see that there? 
Because you have kept my command to persevere, I also will keep you from the hour of trial which shall come upon the whole world to test those who dwell on the earth. You see, the missionary and evangelical church must stick to its calling and its focus. Hold fast to what you have that no one may take your crown. You see here? So I think these last four churches continue on to the end of the age. There's elements of the medieval Roman Catholic Church continuing on to the end of the age. There's elements of institutional Protestantism continuing on to the end of the age. There's certainly this element of the missionary, the evangelical church that was begun sometime in the 18th century continuing on to the present age with this passion to share the gospel and live for Jesus and get the word of God out to the world. But unfortunately, there's also tendencies of the final church, the Laodicean church age which we call the compromising church of the end times. Notice here, verse 14. To the angel of the church of the Laodiceans write, These things says the Amen, the faithful and true witness, the beginning of the creation of God. I know your works, that you're neither hot nor cold. I could wish that you were hot or cold. So then, because you're lukewarm and neither cold nor hot, I will vomit you out of my mouth. Because you say I'm rich and have become wealthy and have need of nothing and do not know that you are wretched, miserable, poor, blind and naked, I counsel you to buy from me gold refined in the fire that you may be rich and white garments that you may be clothed that the shame of your nakedness may not be revealed and anoint your eyes with eye salve that you may see. As many as I love, I rebuke and chasten. Therefore, be zealous and repent. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him and dine with him and he with me. To him who overcomes, I will grant to sit with me on my throne. As I also overcame and sat down with my father on his throne, he who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. It's distressing, isn't it? This compromising church of the end times is often lukewarm, wanting to find a middle ground between following the world and following Jesus. Right? Neither cold nor hot. Trying to play the middle. The compromising church of the end times, it thinks it's well off, but it really isn't. It's rich materially, but not spiritually. Well, look at all the things we have. Look at all the buildings. Look at all the equipment. Look at all this. Look at all that. But is it rich spiritually? Now, the church at Laodicea said, I'm rich and I become wealthy and I have need of nothing. And Jesus looked at them and said, you're wretched, miserable, poor, blind, and naked. The compromising church of the end times, what does it need to do? It needs to come back to Jesus and live a life of fellowship with him. It says, buy from me gold refined in the fire, Jesus says. Stop looking to yourselves, look to me. And then he says, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I'll come into him and dine with him and he with me. That's what Jesus looks at the compromising church at the end times and says, I want a fellowship with you. Stop shutting me out. Stop shutting me out in favor of the world. As distressing as it seems for this church, this compromising church at the end times, it is promised tremendous reward if it will repent and overcome the spirit of the age. Did you see that there in verse 21? To him who overcomes, I will grant to sit with me on my throne, as I also overcame and sat down with my father on his. And that's a pretty good promise, don't you think? The promise of rich, rich reward if they will battle against this compromise of the end times. See, my friends, we take a look at these seven churches and how they represent seven periods of church history. And I, I hope I haven't left you more confused than ever after looking through all of this. But 
I would say this in two final points in conclusion. First of all, please, though I do think that the Lord intended a pattern in this, to give a broad, general illustration of the flow of church history and the characteristic of church movements until his return. I believe that. Surely it's the secondary meaning. Certainly the most important thing is to just take a look at what the Lord says to each church and what it speaks to our lives. But as well, we must remember that every age has had some characteristics of all seven churches. Though certain historical periods are marked by the conditions spoken of in these letters, we could never say that only one letter applies to us or our age. No, the Holy Spirit has something to say to us through every church. One great commentator on the book of Revelation, Joseph Seiss, he says this, There are Protestant papists and papistical Protestants, sectarian, anti-sectarians, and partyists who are not schismatics, holy ones in the midst of abounding defection and apostasy, and unholy ones in the midst of the most earnest and active faith, light in dark places and darkness in the midst of light. That's why we need to hear what the Holy Spirit says to the churches, not to just one church. See, my friends, at the end of the day, God isn't going to ask you in heaven, were you a member of the Church of Philadelphia? Were you a member of the Church of Laodicea? Were you a member of the Roman Catholic Church? Were you a member of this Protestant church? Were you a member of Calvary Chapel? That's what I was going to ask. It's going to know. What's the relationship you have with my son? Have you put your trust in him for your eternal salvation? Or are you trusting yourself? Are you trusting in what you can do to save yourself? Or are you trusting in what Jesus Christ did to save you? That's the best lesson of all from the Bible and church history. Lord God, we pray that you just cover our hearts and our minds. And Lord, I have to say I feel kind of funny teaching a study like this that gets away from just simple verse-by-verse exposition. Lord, whatever I've said tonight that hasn't been helpful or edifying, Lord, just help everybody forget it. But Lord, whatever has been a blessing and will draw people closer to you, well, Lord, by your Spirit, help us to latch on to those things. Father, we thank you for the gift of your word and the gift of your work in history. Help us to see it and keep on writing the book of Acts in our lives. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.